What do air purifiers and yoga studios have in common? These are two ways that landlords and tenants are addressing wellness. Wellness being measures that concern the health of people's minds and bodies. It's one of the fastest growing most important trends in real estate. But unless companies are actually measuring the impact of what they're doing, can they really claim to be providing it, at least to any benefit? That's what we're discussing in this episode of JLL's Perspectives podcast. I'm chatting to Rafer Wallace, founder and CEO of the Reset Certification for Healthy Buildings. Andrew Cole, General Manager of Sustainability at Lendlease Funds Management Australia. And Matthew Clifford, JLL's Head of Energy and Sustainability Services across Asia Pacific. I'm Rebecca Kent. Rafer, first things first, if I'm in the office and I'm feeling lethargic and my concentration is lapsing, can I blame the air quality or the condition of the building for that? Oh, you know, there's always so much that can be blamed. Not the least is maybe the drink from the night before or um, the the type of work that's being worked on. But what we're always saying is that uh, without any data, it's uh, just somebody else's opinion. So um, before blaming the air quality, which all too often at the top of the list, I'd lean over to to the data and uh, have a check first, see if it is the reason I'm feeling lethargic before I blame it. So what am I looking for in the data then? And by the way, it's never, of course, what I had to drink the night before. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're, you're obviously looking for very high CO2 levels, um, but there's other other factors that can uh, create that feeling. Uh, VOC concentrations um, surely don't help, and uh, high particulate matter concentrations will uh, affect the immune system uh, affect the ability for for the body to function. So three key parameters there. And of course, if it's too hot or too cold or too humid, um, those are definitely not going to help either. So wanting to check that all those parameters are in the sweet spot for human comfort, uh, productivity and health. So what makes you an expert then, Rafa? Tell us about your background. I'm a recovering architect. Uh, who used to specialize in, in healthy buildings uh, and sustainability. And uh, back in the early 2000s, just got incredibly frustrated by specifying uh, a whole wealth of low VOC materials, certified low VOC materials, and still failing our projects. Um, and then uh, in about 2005, getting into uh, air quality monitoring to look for cause and effect, try to figure out why we were failing and uh, in the process, stumbling across uh, PM10, uh, PM2.5 did not uh, exist um, as a measure at the time, and stumbling across VOCs and the uh, temperature humidity effects. And very long story short, that took us into creating Reset, uh, which is the world's first standard uh, for measuring the health performance of buildings in, in real time using commercial IoT devices. For the uninitiated, could you just explain those acronyms you used, please? So VOC? Volatile organic compounds, so chemical gases that typically come from uh, the building materials that we use, um, most often formaldehyde, the one people would be most familiar with, but there's a whole bunch of other fun ones, xylene, toluene, benzene, the last one being particularly nasty, um, and also on the lookout for those from cleaning products, uh, clothes that you wear, building samples that make it into spaces, magazines, uh, you name it. And PM10s, I think you referred to. 
PM10. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, so particulate matter. Um, particulate matter dust uh, comes in all ranges and sizes from the size that you can see all the way down to the invisible. So PM10 is just particulate matter of 10 microns in size. Um, that was the former rock star. Now it's PM2.5, uh, a quarter of that. Um, that one became the new rock star several years ago because it's the size at which the um, the particle matter, the dust, enters uh, the bloodstream. Um, but uh, there's a there's a much broader and interesting range of particles out there, going from uh, PM0.1 all the way upwards. Excellent. So if we can substitute everything for Rockstar 1 and Rockstar 2, this could be a fun interview. So I imagine since COVID-19, you've been busier than usual talking to landlords and other businesses about the quality of air in buildings, right? It's been, it's been absolutely insane. I often say that in, uh, in Asia, this is our fifth health crisis, uh, the fourth one that's national. Um, the first one starting in 2003. So over the course of, of 17, 18 years, uh, you learn a lot and uh, you figure things out along the way. And Asia uh, has been particularly advanced on this front. Now we're watching the rest of the world. So we've been doing projects in, in Europe, uh, in uh, North America, um, India, and we're watching the rest of the world try to catch up, sort of squeeze 17 years of learning curve into three to six months. Um, and it's been a bit of a brutal awakening for, for most people and a very, very steep learning curve. So, Andrew, air quality comes under the sustainability banner of real estate, uh, which I guess you could break into two buckets. Green sustainability, so green buildings and energy efficiency, for example, and health and wellness. Is that more or less in line with how you operate? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right. We would look at how do buildings play a critical role in delivering environmental and social value alongside good financial outcomes um, and that premise that environmentally and um, buildings that deliver social value, greater connected communities, better indoor environment quality, uh, human health and wellness benefits. I think, you know, there is an emerging belief that, that these assets themselves actually deliver long-term risk-adjusted returns uh, and, and good financial sense. So, Andrew, tell us a little bit more about yourself so we can better understand your perspective. I have the privilege of um, leading our sustainability strategy and really applying that strategy to portfolios of real assets here in Australia for for Lendlease. We have a number of portfolios that sit across both workplace and office, uh, retail asset class as well as an in industrial. So I really work <clears throat> with our teams to integrate sustainability, environmental and social and governance criteria into our investment processes, as well as then work with our property management and operations team to integrate those strategies into the operations of those um, of those buildings. It's one that means that I get to work very closely with our important customers, being our tenants and the diversity of those tenants, as well as then our third-party capital providers uh, who invest in these fund vehicles. What we're seeing is that environmental and social impact are key drivers for both of those customer bases being tenants and investors. You know, I don't believe healthier planet and healthier people outcomes are necessarily exclusive buckets of outcomes. And I guess um, 
healthier outcomes for the planet were the key focus of the building certification movement, which goes back more than two decades. And there's maturity of those rating tools in North America, here locally in Australia, in Europe, and in many parts of of Asia. And, and I think what we've found and what we've learned as an industry uh, and as a sector is that the attributes of a building that drive really good energy efficiency, like good access to natural light, um, great air handling and HVAC or air conditioning systems in buildings, also are delivering positive impacts to the occupants that occupy those space. I think what's important as you transition the attributes of a or delivery of a building is we have a lot more maturity in measuring our ongoing energy efficiency because that supports a lower cost of operating uh, any any building. Um, but we can't manage what we don't measure around the indoor environment qualities that we have. And I think one of the things that we've noticed is that there's really strong partnerships that are required across the real estate value chain to better measure the spaces that we provide. Thanks, Andrew. And Matt, you work with companies all around the world, corporations, developers, investors and the government to help them optimise their sustainability performance and to get greater returns on their investments. Are businesses approaching sustainability, including wellness, the right way? What are your thoughts? I kind of zoom back out and look at the sustainability uh, story for buildings in a similar way to how we're now talking about healthy buildings and wellness in in that a lot of what organisations have done have started with a strategy of let's do less bad. So when we're talking about that from a sustainability perspective, that might be I'll reduce my energy uh, consumption, I'll reduce my waste production, I'll reduce those negative impacts, and that gradually over time those strategies mature and they become less about doing do do less bad to becoming gradually do more good or hopefully do only good as in having a positive environmental impact on the on the on the real estate form and whatnot and you can track that same trajectory from a healthy buildings perspective where you know through some of the elements that Rafe has been talking about earlier around dealing with pollution obviously COVID is a massive topic on on everybody's radar right now is let's protect people let's make sure that we take away as many of those negative impacts but I think the industry is also really ready for a conversation around what role can buildings play in improving health outcomes, in improving those 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 places that we want to live and play and work. So that do less bad, do more good, do only good storyline, I think, follows through both, uh, both sides there. Thank you, Matt. And Rafer, in terms of tracking sustainability, efficiency and wellness, including air quality, I mean, there's so much personal tech we have access to right now. You can monitor air quality on your phone or your stress level on your wrist. If organisations aren't tracking, then people will be, right? Yes, yes. And, and that's that's been, I mean, we've seen that for years, obviously, in Asia, where it's put a lot of pressure on, uh, it's been both a, a sort of a positive and negative pressure piece, you know, uh, especially in places like schools where, in the early years, um, sort of the 2013s and so on, where parents were putting air quality monitors in their kids' backpack uh, and following the data remotely to ensure that the teachers were actually doing the job, their job, and the the schools were actually doing their jobs. Um, and you can imagine that creating a lot of tension between um, 
the uh, the building operators and uh, and the stakeholders. I was just going to share a quick story on that. It was uh, a, a client, uh, which I'll I'll let them remain nameless, uh, came to us and said, "Hey, our our staff in our Beijing office have been coming into work with these little hundred dollar air quality monitors that they bought online, and they're telling us that the air quality is bad in the office. What should we do?" And my immediate reaction was, "Well, what do your monitors say? You know, hopefully you've installed some appropriate monitors that are installed correctly and have been calibrated correctly." They said oh, no, we didn't do that because it was going to cost us X thousand dollars to install monitors correctly. So, well, you've already lost control of the narrative, you know, and you've possibly lost control, you know, of the of the air quality problem. You know, what what risk do you run if that employee says, well, I'm investing in these in this tech, this, you know, whether it's accurate or not is, is remains to be seen in that respect. But my employer does not. You know, maybe I'll go and take my team and we'll walk down the road and go work, work for another organization. You know, a better strategy there is for that organization to have been on the front foot to say, we know that these issues are occurring. We can make these investments in our operational data tracking, in our management, so that when those questions come, we say, oh, yeah, actually, don't rely on your little you know, desk side monitor, that's inaccurate. Here's the proper stuff that we've been looking at day in, day out, and all the management practices that we put in place to help protect your health. That would have been a, a far more positive conversation to be had than the way that it unfolded because they were they were not prepared. Correct. I mean, you nailed it. And as, as more data comes into real estate, um, I mean, we get, we we see a lot of the underbelly of pieces. Yeah, that's, that's, those, those examples go further. Uh, lawsuits for Stakeholders, the people, occupants within the buildings that have more data than the building owner. Um, that's that's a that's not a position that anyone wants to find themselves. Actually, you know, the the reset core and shell standard was was set up um, in response to that uh, to uh, to a tenant case that had more um, data than the building owner. And uh, eventually figuring out that the building was actually fine in this particular case, but wanting to be able to track that in, in real time to ensure that those situations uh, didn't happen again. But where the future is going and where you know, that what I'm talking about is already sort of five, six years ago, where the future is going, uh, Rebecca, to your earlier point as well, is we're going, to, we're going to be seeing the ability of people to want to plug into buildings. So have their own layer of data but wanting to plug into the layer of data provided by the building. And I'll give, a, I'll give an example of that. We've been recently working, uh, well, recently, for the past six months, we've been working on, a, on an index uh, that allows to estimate the risk of viral transmission within buildings. And that, that index is based on short-term and long-term exposure to some parameters. And again, just give a very concrete example, uh, low humidity, lowers the immune system dramatically. Uh, so it can cut the performance of your immune system in half or more, which raises the risk of getting sick by twofold. Um, but that, that is uh, only after you've been exposed to low humidity for 48 to, to 72 hours. And so that's, no one's in a building uh, for that long, at least hopefully not. They're moving between home and other places. Um, and so, you know, what we're what we're starting to see next is, is as you mentioned, uh, people with wearables um, who want to be able to plug into the data of a building um, to access uh, historical data uh, for the types of environmental parameters um, that affect their health on a more long-term basis.
All right. So then how do you measure the impact of, say, a meditation studio or good lighting or good air quality in a building, Matt? Those parameters run the spectrum from very tangible to, to somewhat intangible when we look at them in isolation. So, you know, fresh air rates in a building is a highly tangible thing that you can measure on productivity. And there's some great research that the jail has been involved in looking at that and, uh, and, and what that does um, for overall, uh, you know, mental alertness and whatnot, you know, through to some of those other areas that perhaps are a little bit more subjective. But if if we think about this from a real estate perspective, and what does what real estate exist for? Can we zoom back out and say, well, if we're doing those things, the, the combination of tangible and intangible things in unison, are we creating a place uh, where people want to go to work, where they like being in the building, they feel productive, they feel engaged, they feel enthused? What benefits does that have in terms of how quickly you might be able to lease or sell um, that, that building? How, you know, what are the returns that you get as a landlord that might own that kind of building? Now, some of these holistic programs using, using the rating schemes that have been coming out of the last five or six years have been developing buildings which really set out to do exactly that. Now, it's perhaps a little too early to be able to attribute exactly those tangible benefits um, from a broader real estate perspective, but that's something that I think the industry is grappling with now to say, well, we know that this is something that appeals to people. We know that th- when we do these things in buildings, they tend to be uh, the kinds of buildings that you know, hopefully do lease up more quickly and do, you know, do attract, you know, better tenants, that sort of thing. So the logic hopefully follows through that that is going to, you know, translate through to, you know, to business value as much as employee health and health outcome. And I think just to, to add to that, I mean, you know, if I, to, to, to steal a, a mat line, if I zoom out for a moment, I think, the wellness offer from an, from an employer's perspective is largely around the corporate culture or the culture that it's offering its people. Um, and, and, you know, I think there's strong evidence to suggest that cities and employers uh, sort of, you know, engage, you know, in a, you know, war for talent to attract and retain the very best people. And there's no question that um, wellness, both in terms of programs, systems, op- opportunities and flexibility, are a key part of that attraction and retention strategy for workplaces, and and I think there's there's um, there's enough to suggest that that has always existed beyond just the physical workplace, because they're about the programs and the conditions of employment that are offered to people, and I I I think that for those uh, early adopters of wellness programs for their employees. Um, the particular COVID-19 pandemic and scenario that we find ourselves in today probably places those organisations in good stead, both from a return to work strategy and fixed workplace strategy, as much as the way that they have looked out for their employees over this period. Um, but I do certainly think that there will be an amplification for for other sectors and for other employers to have a laser focus on um, on wellness because it will be fundamental in, in, um, in their continued success and ability to employ great people. And the landscape around that is changing so, so quickly. I've, I just noticed how you know, since this started, uh, we've fielded so many questions about things like ergonomics and just people taking, you know, investing in a better chair at home and things like this. And then questions about air quality within homes. And that is a complete Pandora's box because 
uh, air quality systems within homes are really, really extraordinarily under par for the most part. They usually consist of opening a window being the sort of top level of, of management. And now what we're seeing without question is a lot of, a lot of companies who were somewhat quietly celebrating the fact that they'd be reducing their expense by reducing their rent, um, who are now having to spend on mental health, uh, mental support for uh, the staff working from home. And that's, uh, that's, that's taken, that's taken a whole new turn and that, that really is, uh, um, that's much more gray zone territory on, um, on how much, uh, beyond just the, the physical, uh, space, but, uh, how, how you, how you tap into, uh, providing remote mental health for staff. So that anyone who's, who's listening who sort of hasn't started their adventure, um, down this path, uh, this topic or these topics tend to be um, overwhelming. And I think Andrew made a really good point of illustrating how blurred the lines uh, are getting and this idea, this absolutely critical idea of shared responsibility. Uh, there's been a lot of asks from tenants to landlords uh, without realizing that a lot of the um, the performance aspects of buildings and the interior spaces are as much the responsibility of the tenants as uh, the landlords. And now we were speaking about uh, the deeper relationship between employers and employees um, in terms of home versus office and what's the engagement and, and so on. Those lines are getting uh, very blurred. And in the process, that creates a lot more things to manage, uh, many more data points uh, to manage. And I think at the at the end of the day, uh, what we're seeing is that this really becomes um, an incredible exercise in operational management, as boring as the term <laughs> as that may seem to be. But you know, we we track uh, hundreds of buildings and spaces around the world, and it's unbelievable to see um, how clear the differences between the people who have uh, strong operational management processes in place and those who are, are able to deploy uh, solutions at the beginning, but how quickly those solutions fall apart when there is no, um, when there is no oversight or tracking of, uh, of the metrics. And what a note to finish on. Rafer Wallace, Andrew Cole and Matthew Clifford Thank you very much for explaining why it is so critical to measure wellness and how important it is to achieve it as a team, if nothing else, so we don't find ourselves cramming 17 years of learning into six months again, which does sound pretty inefficient. Thanks very much. Thank you very much.